Uh, so we're here to talk the second week of, of socks and underwear. And if you remember, the concept of this series is that we all have a tendency when we're thinking about spiritual things, we have a tendency to ask for things that we want. And in my opinion or my thought is that a lot of times what we want spiritually are sort of the equivalents of a big screen TV or sometimes or uh, Xbox, is it Xbox One? Is it, am I right? Okay, yeah. So spiritually, we have this thing inside us, at least I do, that wants to ask for the big things, the things that we want. Um, but God doesn't always give us the things that we want, at least in terms of those big things. He gives us the things more deeply that we need. So last week, Pastor Mark talked about hope and how uh, where one, some of us might want a whole list of things spiritually, on the other side, what Jesus comes to give us is what we most need, and that first thing is hope. Today, we're going to talk about justice, but before we do that, I want to talk about something that I've just called first words. First words are important words. And I want to tell you a, a brief story about my time at E3. When I came to E3 seven so years ago, I had to learn something that if I was going to speak and open my mouth at E3, I had to learn these words. And if you've hung around E3 at all, you know the words too because you hear them, if not every week, almost every week. And they go something like this. Say them with me if you know it. Welcome to E3 where faith, authenticity, and emerging culture meet. I had to learn that. And at first it was very awkward. I would get them out of place and Mark, of course, would, you know, you got them out of order. And... Um, <laughs> I learned that. That's the first thing that you hear almost every week from this platform. There's a walk-in song. Dan comes out in more weeks than not, I believe, comes out, Welcome to E3, where faith, authenticity, and emerging culture meet. That's our first word. If you're visiting at E3, that's the first thing we want you to know about us. Faith, authenticity, and emerging culture a place that is centered on God, a place that is centered on taking your masks off and being who you are, and a place that is centered on feeling like you can explore faith in the 21st century without having to wear a suit that came from the 1950s or the 1960s. That's fine. That's just not where we're at now. First words are important because they set the tone. In my mind, they tell you what you should expect. Ideally, they should tell you the DNA of everything about this organization, this church, and this experience. Faith, authenticity, and emerging culture meet. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. When Jesus came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went, as usual, to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at Jesus intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you have just heard has been fulfilled this very day. And if there was ever kind of an image, I know it's really kind of hokey, but if there was an ever image of Jesus dropping the mic and like walking off the stage, I get the, that's when it would be. The scripture has been fulfilled this very day, drop mic off stage, whatever. These are Jesus's first words in the gospel of Luke. But Jesus has, has gone into the wilderness. He's been tempted. He is he has succeeded, he has been baptized, but these are the first words of his ministry. And I want to suggest to you this morning that they matter an awful lot. That the first words out of Jesus' mouth are words of justice. That we're gonna set captives free. That blind people are going to see that people are going to be healed. And ultimately this phrase, that the Lord's favor, the year of the Lord's favor has come. This is what Luke starts with in his gospel. And in Luke, Jesus plays out these words uh, in a variety of different ways. These aren't just metaphors for Jesus. Jesus does give people their sight back. Their spiritual blindness as well there's both, there's both sides. There's a spiritual aspect to Jesus of what he's going to do, but do not miss the fact that he means what he says. And in this respect, Jesus is speaking from a history of his people that goes back through Isaiah, which he quotes, but also uh, to other prophets, other guys who talked about this thing called justice. And uh, I just want to read an example of what God's people and the prophets had to say about justice. There was a guy named Amos who uh, in the first first testament, the Old Testament, he spoke to the religious rulers and the kings and and the, the spiritual leaders of his day. And this is what he had to say in Amos 5. He says, do what is good and run from evil so that you may live. Then the Lord God of heaven's armies will be your helper just as you have claimed. Hate evil. Love what is good. Turn your courts into true halls of justice. Perhaps even yet the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercy on the remnant of his people. Then a few verses below that, he says, where that might be a little bit more familiar to you. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. God says, I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice and an endless river of righteous living. Other translations, might, you might have heard it this way. Let justice roll like a mighty river. 
So Jesus is drawing on a history of people of God that says justice matters. And when Jesus speaks his first words of ministry, they are words of justice. So it's important to God. So much so that he says, you know what? I don't care how good your band is. I don't care how good your guitar solos are or how good your drummer is. If you can't get Monday through Friday right, don't talk to me about Sunday. That's strong words from God. And that's God. That's not just somebody kind of paraphrasing. That is God speaking. So this is what Jesus leads with. And now I want to pause here because, again, this series about socks and underwear, it's about what we want versus what we need. And sometimes what we think we want is not what God comes to give us. But justice is different because I think we all want justice. Do we not? Like, raise your hand if you have been wronged and you craved justice when you were wronged. For those of you who didn't raise your hand, can we all learn (laughs) the spiritual life from you? When I'm wronged, I want justice. And I think we all probably are that way. So when we're talking about socks and underwear, we're like, you know what, actually I need justice, but actually I want justice too. I want to know that the world is fair and that when things go wrong, something's going to happen that sets it right. The problem is, our problem is, I don't think we understand justice the right way. And I think you could probably categorize our misunderstandings of justice in two broad categories. The first way that we misunderstand justice is something that I would just like to call sort of dirty, hairy justice, right? This is the justice that we seek when we are the victims. When we are wronged, when someone manipulates us, when someone uh, pushes us down at work so that they can get ahead, ooh, we want Harry Callahan, do we not? We want him to come in and take the people out that wronged us and restore us to the right way of living, so to speak. uh, I'm an unabashed uh, confession here. It may not be too popular. Uh, I'm an unabashed pacifist. I love peace, but I also love Sons of Anarchy. Um, I am not advocating this for anybody under 17 by the way, it's a violent show. Uh, it's a little bit gory, a little bit gross. But these guys understand this type of justice too. Anybody ever seen this show? What happens if you cross Sam Crow? It's not pretty. Justice in this vision is swift and absolute and bloody. And when we are wronged, not that we want people to be murdered, we want things to be set right quickly. The only problem with this type of justice is what it leaves behind. Because justice that is only about punishment more or less just leaves resentment and another cycle of violence and revenge. So in other words, you might get what you want, but the first chance that that person that got sort of 
I don't know, uh, addressed in that, first chance they have to get back at you, maybe they get back at you then, and the cycle perpetuates. The second misunderstanding of justice is the justice that we experience when we are the ones who do the wrong. And this justice I've just called Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man justice. I mean, who could be mad at the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man? Ghostbusters 2, not counting. It's also what I would call My Little Pony justice. Because what's My Little Pony going to... Like, this is what we want when we've made the mistake. We want a hug. It's okay. You know, and a pat on the back. We'll get them next time, buddy. The problem with this type of justice is it doesn't address that there is actually a wrong. Okay, I've got a hug. Okay, I didn't get punished. But is it honest? It's not. A lot of times, this version of justice just lacks in the ability to say something happened that was not right. And so if we go back and forth between these two visions of justice, what can we find or what can we see that wraps it all together? Because this is not, these two kind of parodies are not what God's justice looks like. Uh, I would suggest that God's justice looks, we can learn a little bit, or I would say, um, Mr. Mandela, Nelson Mandela was laid to rest this week and Mark talked about him last week and I've been thinking about him this week too because I think they learned something about God's justice in South Africa. I don't know how much you know about South African history but when Mr. Mandela was released from prison and uh, took control of the government, he had a choice. Apartheid was over. It crumbled, it toppled and all of a sudden uh, the people who had been oppressed were now the people in power. And there was a tremendous drive to say, now is our chance for revenge. Now is our chance for justice against the people who have murdered our brothers and sisters, our sons and daughters, who have tortured, who have imprisoned. We want justice. And there was a tremendous pushing for that. And there was another tremendous pushing that said, okay, you know what? A lot of crimes were committed. Let's just pardon everybody. Let's, not, let's pretend that nothing happened and let's move on. And Mr. Mandela and the government could have gone either direction, but they had a higher vision of what justice looked like. And so they set up this thing called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And the concept was simple. The concept said simply this. If you participated in government-sanctioned murder or torture or kidnapping or imprisonment, we will offer you amnesty. But you must come forward and you must say what you did. Not to be punished, but so that you could be pardoned and you can be reconciled. And on the flip side of that, they began to take statements of victims the commission was chaired by Desmond Tutu, who was a bishop in the Anglican Church and also involved people from both sides of the political fence. And they sat and they listened to 22,000 victims tell their stories of murder, execution, torture. And in the end, only about 7,000, 8,000 people came forward to take the people up on their offer of amnesty but they came up and they told their story. And in that 
vision, uh, actually in the title of that body, is what I want to suggest justice looks like. Truth and reconciliation. You see, My Little Pony justice has no truth in it. It doesn't say something happened. And so when people came forward in South Africa to say, I want amnesty, they said, fine, but you must tell the story. You must say something really happened here. But if you do that, we don't want our country to be just caught in a perpetual civil war, violent cycle. The goal of this thing is reconciliation, not punishment. And so as the people confessed essentially and told the truth, rather than use it as a club to beat people down, it was used as an instrument to bring people together. And even the victims said, you have no idea how helpful this was. Just to hear the honest uh, confession that something happened, but then to shut the door and said, our goal is reconciliation, is not punishment. This is what God's justice looks like. God does not administer justice to punish. God administers justice to reconcile. He's got a larger purpose in mind. I just want to, leave, I just want to kind of read this quote from Bishop Tutu. He said this, forgiving and being reconciled to our enemies of our loved ones or our loved ones is not about pretending that things are other than they are. It's not about patting one another on the back and turning a blind eye to the wrong. True reconciliation exposes the awfulness, the abuse, the hurt, and the truth. It could even sometimes make things worse. It's a risky undertaking, but in the end, it is worthwhile because in the end, only an honest confrontation with reality can bring healing. Superficial reconciliation can bring only superficial healing. So Jesus shows up speaking these words of justice that are not meant to punish people, but are meant to reconcile them to God and to each other. And when Jesus speaks these words, he's not only drawing on Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61. He's not only drawing on a tradition that comes from Amos. He's drawing on the very foundations of God's people. He's actually drawing on something that goes all the way back to Leviticus 25. Jesus has in his statement, he says, now it's the year of the Lord's favor. And that phrase is not just a, a loose connection of words for Jesus. It is a specific reference to something that God identifies and sanctions in Leviticus 25. In Leviticus 25, God uh, suggests this, but God really doesn't ever really suggest things, does he? He kind of declares things. He says, every 50 years you have to do something. Every 50 years, you have to change the way you live for a year. And this is called the Jubilee year. I think Mark was just talking about the place in Haiti that they go. It's called Jubilee. Well, this is a, this is a Bible word. It's a Hebrew word. Anybody ever heard this year before? The Jubilee year was something that God said, every 50 years, you need 
to basically press reset on your whole life. And in this, uh, a few things would happen. At the beginning of the year, at the beginning of the Jewish year, the Day of Atonement, someone would blow a horn. And then you began to rearrange your life. God says uh, certain things have to happen. One, if you have bought land from somebody else in the nation of Israel, you know what you have to do? You have to return it to them. Because chances are they may have sold that land to you when they were kind of stressed out or financially struggling. And so God says, in the Jubilee year, the land goes back to its original owner. In the Jubilee year, if you owe debts, your debts are forgiven, not suspended, not put off, wiped out. Because nobody should have to live in debt. If somebody owes you money, it's up to you to cancel it. God also says, if you are a slave and you're owned by another Israelite family in the Jubilee year, you are freed. Everything is being remade and restructured and reset. And then God also says, the crops, the farmland that you have, for a year, you don't plant. For a year, the land just rests. And Jesus comes and says, the blind are going to see, the captives are going to be set free. Jesus says, now is the year of the Lord's favor. Now is the Jubilee year. Jesus says, the reset is happening now through my ministry because of me. And so justice doesn't just uh, emerge as something that God wants to kind of shift around resources or anything like that. Justice emerges as a way for God to say every 50 years and now perpetually because Jesus has said it's the year of the Lord's favor. God wants you to redo the way you're thinking. And God doesn't do this for pure economic reasons. God does this to remind us that he owns everything. Because God owns the land. You see, it's easy for us to think that we own all our possessions. It's easy for us to think that, hey, I bought this land. I sold this land. I did all this stuff. But the Jubilee year, God says, you actually need a reminder. Because I'm going to move things around. You're just a steward. Justice is about what God owns. And guess what? He owns all this and he owns all of us. And so the Jubilee year says, reset. Let's remember who's in charge and who owns everything. But it doesn't stop there because Jubilee actually points to another reality that is even more uh, explosive and pervasive. And Jesus is talking about this as well. Because right after Leviticus 25 comes Leviticus 26. And in Leviticus 26, God mentions a little word that to me speaks to what God's justice is really about. And it's the word shalom. Everybody ever heard of the word shalom? It's a Hebrew word. What's it mean? Peace? Anything else? It does mean peace. Wholeness. That's a good one. Peace, wholeness. And I would suggest to you that it's, it's the center of everything. Let me just read Leviticus 26 to you. 
God says this, I will send you the seasonal rains. The land will then yield its crops and the trees of the field will produce their fruit. Your threshing season will overlap with the grape harvest and your grape harvest will overlap with the season of planting grain. You will eat your fill and you'll live securely in your own land. I will give you, and here's the word, I will give you peace, shalom in the land and you will be able to sleep at night with no cause for fear. I will rid the land of wild animals and keep your enemies out of your land. And in that brief passage, you kind of see what shalom begins to hint at. It's not just peace as in like almost boredom. Shalom is this concept that says, God, everything is in its right place. It speaks to, hey, I'll send the rains and the land will bear its fruit. It means security. It means God says, you will lay down at night with no cause for fear. It means contentment. It means rest. It means safety. It means security that doesn't just come from getting your paycheck every other Thursday. It means security coming Knowing, coming from the knowledge that God is a God of shalom and wants this for you. I think these are the deepest needs of our lives. Would you agree? Contentment, safety, security. Isaiah, the prophet, also writes this. God says this, justice will rule in the wilderness and righteousness in the fertile field and this righteousness will bring what? Peace, shalom. Yes, it will bring quietness and confidence forever. So I was, as I was thinking about justice, and I was thinking about Jesus' words, and I was thinking about how he said the captives will be set free, the poor are going to be taken care of, the blind will see, so on and so forth. And then he's talking about the year of Jubilee. Now is the year of the Lord's favor. It's a, it's a vision of justice, but it's not just justice for justice's sake. It's justice so that shalom can come. And I thought of it this way, that God is a God of justice so that he can be a God of shalom. He doesn't just want to be a God that takes care of just the wrongs in the world. Even though he will do that, he wants to be a God that says, and he is a God that says, you can rest at night because all is right in the world. Justice serves shalom. And I think when Jesus says, now is the year of the Lord's favor, he's saying, shalom is coming through me. You can have shalom. You can have not just eternal life, but peace and rest now. And I'm wondering if that's appealing to anybody today. Are we still a people that crave 
rest at night? Are we still a people that crave that God will send his rains in season and the crops will grow? Are we still that people? Then we still crave a justice that leads to shalom. And if if God sends us into the world the way he sent Jesus into the world, which is what Jesus says in John 17. Jesus says, Father, you've sent me into the world, so now I'm gonna send my disciples into the world. And if Jesus says, now is the year of the Lord's favor, now is the year of Jubilee, if we are sent the way Jesus is sent, could we, should we be a people that in turn say, now is the year of the Lord's favor. Now is the Jubilee. Now is the time when we will be about setting debts aright. When we will be about releasing our stranglehold on our possessions to say, maybe somebody else can use this. Maybe we can be agents, if you will, of shalom. Not just agents of justice, but agents that spread an idea that says, God is in control of this world. I'm going to uh, be about as much justice as I can, but you understand that the thing behind justice is this thing called shalom. So what can I do to offer you security? What can I do to offer you peace? What can I do to help you rest your head at night without fear? And then these last questions kind of pop up in my head. That if we are sent into the world like Jesus was, to pronounce the year of the Lord's favor, to pronounce freedom for captives, eyesight for the blind, should this then affect how we live our lives? Should it affect how we shop? Should it affect, if you have a business, how you hire? Should it affect where you choose to live in the world? Could we declare this like a Christmas of Jubilee? Where we say, for the next two weeks, we're going to announce the year of the Lord's favor. And we are going to offer shalom to the world in whatever way we can. Not for the sake of justice, for the sake of peace, contentment, security, rest. Let's bow.